HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry. Learn more at heritagefoods.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in Three. I, I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong. We'll introduce you to one food waste solution happening in Asia. They introduced this system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off. And then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money yep. for the weight of that food. And we'll take a look at some of the real struggles happening closer to home. How is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at 10.59 p.m. then becomes waste at 11 p.m.? So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co-owner of Samisa Restaurant and Edit Bev Restaurants in Brooklyn. My guest today is Chef Matt Abdu. He's the chef partner of the Brooklyn barbecue restaurant Pig Beach and Manhattan's Pig Bleaker, which is a full-service smoke food influence restaurant located in Greenwich Village. Pig Beach was named one of Eater's essential barbecue restaurants, and Pig Bleaker received a strong one-star review from the New York Times. Matt was previously the CDC of Del Posto, and he was with the restaurant when it received its four-star review from the New York Times. He's appeared on TV many times, including the Today Show and The Chew, and he first earned his barbecue chops during his uh, stints with the Salty Rinse Squad, which we'll talk about in a little bit, where he received second-place medal for Whole Hog in 2015 and first place for best sauce at the annual Memphis in May World Championships. Today we're going to talk smoke, lots and lots of meat, what it's like to go from opening up restaurants in, and being a chef of two restaurants in two different boroughs, and of course, his favorite type of barbecue. Matt, welcome to the show. How you doing, my pal? Thanks for having me. So as always with this show, we like to start kind of in childhood at the beginning, talking about how people got interested in food, what those influences were. So you grew up in New Hartford, New York. You I have did. Italian and Lebanese heritage. Yes, so sir. I would love for you to talk a little bit about what was your childhood like growing up there and which 
one if either of those influences played a role in your childhood and your love of food. How long we have on this show today? You have exactly 47 more minutes to All talk. right, fantastic. Well, here we go. So I am born and raised in upstate New York, the small town of New Hartford. It's, uh, if anybody's familiar with central New York, it's uh, near Utica slash Rome area. It's about 45 minutes east of Syracuse, New York, and about an hour and a half uh, west of Albany. Um, I'm, as you said, I'm half Italian, half Lebanese, and my entire life I grew up with my Italian grandmother and sa- side of the family told me to manja, and the Lebanese side of my family told me to sakhtain, which basically both mean eat, love, be happy, and uh, food was always the center of our family. It was what brought our family together. We sat down and ate dinner every single night. I'm one of four boys, um, each of my size which is pretty incredible considering, uh, you know, God bless my mother for being able to keep our fridge full, especially when we would have all of our friends over because our place was a, the cool place to come and hang out after school and eat because mom always had the best food. Um, but f- it, food really sort of shaped my entire existence. I mean, I, I grew up always loving the power of food. And when I was applying for culinary schools, I wrote in my essay, I love the power of food, whether it be a piece of chocolate when you're sad or a bowl of chicken soup when you're sick, food has that unique ability to make you feel better or put a smile on somebody's face. And that was always, for me, such a big part of, of my life. And food was the epicenter of my grandmother's and my mother basically just showing their love through an actual physical means of food and bringing us together. Was Sunday a exclusively Italian affair, or did Lebanese dishes kind of creep into the family gatherings? You know, I'm, I'm really... seeing like this table that has... like. I don't know, malawak, but also uh, (laughs) spaghetti and meatballs. I don't know. Is that a thing that happens? You know what's really funny is that very often that would be the case. So growing up, Friday nights was always my grandmother's, uh, my Lebanese grandmother's. Um, She lived nearby. My Italian grandparents lived in Bethel, Connecticut. So that was like a four-hour drive for us to go there. But when we were younger and they were younger, they would come to, you know, our house. And, you know, my, my favorite food memories would be my Italian grandmother coming to our house and the aroma of the Sunday gravy and meatballs and sausage and brajol or tomato sauce, whatever you guys want to call it. Um, she'd start, she'd bring her big pot. She'd go to, you know, to Costco and she'd buy all her right Italian imported tomatoes that she wanted to use. And she'd start like browning off the brajol at like six o'clock in the morning and like waking up as a kid. That was like the best smell on the planet, like salivating right now, like yeah, thinking about it. I can't even like speak properly. That is a good thing. It's not a traditional breakfast smell. It's not quite the American bacon or eggs not, or not waffles. Not at all, but, but it, was, it was better. Something like, delicious to we wake would, up to. Yeah. Me and my brothers, we'd wake up and we'd start trying to sneak meatballs out of the big old pot of sauce and she'd be like slap her hands. She'd be like, they're not done yet. She's like, I've got those counted. I know exactly how many are supposed to be in there. Um, but, you know, at my at Fridays, we would go to my my Lebanese grandmother's house and we would have a lot of like mjadara, the rice and lentils or like kibinea. Like I grew up eating raw meat and had no idea it was raw meat until I was probably like 12 and I just ate it and loved it. You know, and onions, you, olive oil, you told bread. someone you're like, yeah, we eat raw meat all the time. And they were like, what do you mean you eat raw meat? Oh is yeah. It was, even, I mean, like, I was the kid thing. You know? I was a kid in, in junior high that was bringing either like, you know, a, a chicken cutlet sandwich to school or like a bowl of rice and lentils. Yeah, and not having any idea that like wasn't the normal thing. Like my friends had fruit roll ups and peanut butter and jellies and potato chips, and I would try desperately to trade with them. I'm like, I want a fruit roll up. My mom won't give me those things. But um, food. It, so like for example, at Thanksgiving, we would always have Thanksgiving at my at my Lebanese grandmother's house, and on her table would always be um, 
like a mix of Lebanese food. Obviously, there'd be the turkey, but she'd get like the smallest turkey possible because nobody really cared. Um, and she would do a bunch of Lebanese food, rice and lentils, kibbe, grape leaves, like all that fun, delicious stuff. And But there would also be like a pan of baked ziti in the corner as well because, you know, we she wanted to feed all of her grandchildren. Of and sometimes course. we were a little more picky than we'd like to be. I, however, wasn't. You people at home listening can't see me, but I have this physical muscular gigantic build no i'm not that way at all but i love to eat and clearly it shows so when you're growing up and you're surrounded by this big extended family where clearly food is playing a big role uh you started off pretty young getting involved in food you were working at a place called cafe canole yes and so let's talk a little bit about that how did you how did you get that job were you strong-armed into that job or no, were you I w- like I, I really want to i really you know, want to get involved in food that's a super great story so g- growing up i went through this phase in junior high where i got super into baking like cheesecakes chocolate torts cookies like you name it as it was my mo my mom got me a hershey's cookbook awesome for christmas one year <laughs> and it was my goal to cook my way through this entire cookbook so i started doing you know, just for fun on my days off because I was, I mean, I mean, I don't know even how I at the time I did sports and everything as well, but um, I would make these cheesecakes and these chocolate torts. And one day my mother uh, had a faculty party. So my, my father and my mother both worked at the same junior high together. My father taught seventh grade math for 33 years in the same classroom at the same school. And my mother worked in the guidance department. Not as long as my dad worked there because she was raising us. And once we were old enough, she went back to work. Um, uh, side note, my parents are my heroes. If I can become half the man my father is by the time I die, I know I, I will have lived a, a very successful life. But uh, I made a cake one day for my mother to take to a faculty party, and one of the teachers at the faculty party said, oh, my God, where did you get this cake from? It's incredible. And my mom's like, Matthew made it. And he's like, what do you mean? She's like, I can't get him out of the kitchen. You know, He loves to cook. Doesn't like to clean all that much, but loves to cook. And, uh, and this gentleman's name was Ralph Polito. And he said, well, does he ever want to do it professionally? Is he looking for a summer job? And she's like, I don't know. Let me ask him. So she came home that day. And Cafe Knoll, for those of you that know upstate New York and know the Utica area, Jane and Jason and Dean Knoll are two of like the most culinarily talented people back home in central New York. And they have an incredible bakery cafe that makes Italian wedding cakes, pastries, cookies, like the whole gambit, you name it, with a delicious food, lunches, and dinners. And the Revered is one of the best restaurants back home. So when my mom came home and asked me if I wanted to work at Cafe Canola, I was like, oh, yes, absolutely. Sign me up. That'd be a dream come true. So she's like, okay. Ralph said, be there. Be at the bakery at 6 a.m. I was like, oof, okay, 6 a.m. Let's do this. I'm ready. So I got there at like 5.30 because I was so anxious and so excited. You know, it was still dark outside when I went. And... uh you know, I went into the kitchen, and the first thing they did was, like, have me wash dishes, which is totally normal because I'm, you know, 15, 16 years old. I've never really worked in a professional restaurant before and have no idea, like, no idea what I'm doing. And, you know, one of my favorite memories of being back there is I was in the dish dish station, and they were whipping up gigantic floor Hobart mixers worth of um, a Chambord, like, raspberry-flavored whipped cream frosting for some of the cakes they were making and then a chocolate Godiva frosting for some of the cakes that they were making. And they would bring the whip attachments back to the dish pit for me to put in the dish machine and eat. And I was like... I know where this is going. They bring it back to me and I'm looking at it. I'm looking around. I'm like, putting my finger on the whisk, putting a little in my mouth, tasting it, being like, oh my God, this is the greatest job ever. I get to snack on all these delicious things. So about an hour into the day, the older brother Dean came up to me 
and said, Maddie, I got a job for you. You don't want to wash dishes. Our dishwasher's here. Like, you're here to, like, learn, so come here. He gave me a five-gallon bucket of cannoli cream and put me in a pastry bag with a, just a round tip on it and put me in the corner and said, I want you to fill all these cannoli shells until the cream is gone. I was like, oh, my God, this is heaven. I was like, yeah, I'm on, I'm on it. So he shows me how to use the pastry bag. I have this five-gallon bucket of cannoli cream, a spatula, and like boxes and boxes of cannoli shells, and I'm just filling the cannolis like one at a time. He's like, make sure you get it all the way to the center because it's you know it's the worst thing ever when a cannoli has like an air gap in the middle. You gotta show me the right way to do it. And I'm like piping a cannoli, putting some on my finger, eating it, piping a cannoli, putting some on my finger, eating it. And these guys, you know, as they saw that I had a an aptitude for it and and really loved it, they continued to give me more and more opportunities to do more things in the kitchen and advance me through the ranks. So. I ended up working at Cafe Canola for I think like seven years throughout uh, high school and college, like all my summer times in college. And Dean and Jason were both graduates of the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. So they sort of cultivated me and progressed me into that transition to go to that school. So I attended uh, a state university of New York at Geneseo to get my undergrad in business. Because when I told my father I wanted to go to culinary school, he's like, you know, maybe this is just a phase. It's probably a good idea for you to have a bachelor's in something just in case, you know, you decide you don't want to cook for the rest of your life. And then if you still want to do this afterwards, we'll we'll get you signed up for culinary school. But you still got something that was applicable to to the restaurant world and the food world. I you did. were still pretty lasered in at that point. I well I, I did and I was. I, I you know, I graduated with a bachelor's in business administration, but I wanted to go to Cornell. And my dad was like, "Matt, you know, you're one of three boys. Cornell is an exceptionally amazing school, however, we can't afford it." Um, you're more than welcome to apply. I'll, you know, I'll pay for your application fee, which was like 200 bucks or something crazy. I was like, all right, I got waitlisted. Um, but you know, it turns out Geneseo was a great choice. I met a lot of great people and got a great head start on going to culinary school. And so you, you do end up in Hyde Park and you do end up going to the CIA, right? I went to the CIA. And so, uh, you graduated from there. And so I'll ask you now, looking back, now that you are running restaurants, you have many people on your staff. What are your thoughts now on culinary school uh, versus when you attended? Because you actually did something. You got a lot of on-the-job training, right? You worked for at Cafe Canole for yeah. seven years. Yeah. You probably came into culinary school with a lot more experience than most of the people there. But you st- And then you also had a college degree. Yep. So you were kind of in a different boat than a lot of the folks there. Do you still think that you would recommend to a lot of people to go to culinary school or or not? You know, and I'll, I feel like it's kind of a loaded question. But <laughs> anyway, so yes, when I went to culinary school, I was way, way, way ahead of my class. I went into a typical – so the way the Culinary Institute of America works, it's a rolling admission. So they accept a class like every two weeks or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the, when I enrolled – you know, I, I graduated from college. I took the summer off, and I went right back into that sort of September start time as if I was just going back to school. And because of it, the majority of the kids in my class were like 17 and 18-year-olds that had just graduated high school. And I was 22 because I just graduated college. And uh, I also had all this culinary training behind me, like, you know, all through high school, all through college I was working. And, uh, yes, I was certainly a leg up on most people there. You know, culinary school is an incredible opportunity to – get classical formal training in an you know institutional level environment. The downside to it in this day and age is that it's really, really expensive. I mean, the Culinary Institute of America, I think, is somewhere around like, I don't know, $45,000 a year now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't that much when I went. Yeah. 
but I mean that's that's a lot of money. I mean it's to a be big in, commitment. Yeah, big it's a financial. Be, commitment. Yeah, to be in debt two hundred thousand dollars at the end of like because now that they're a four year program, which is great because you can get a bachelor's as well. Right. But to be in debt that much money, and then graduate, and then I mean back in my day, I left culinary school to go get a job. I, I started working in Boston. We still got a long tour to go on my right, my exactly. culinary path. But anyways, you know you you graduate and you're making minimum wage right. for the first two three years of your career as a, as a cook because. You know, as much as you might think you know a lot upon graduating culinary school, the reality is is that there's nothing like actual physical hands-on training, being in a kitchen, being in that pressure cooker environment, working with different personalities and people of different talent levels and, and chefs of, you know, extreme accolades that have done a lot of things, won a lot of awards, and have been in the industry for a very long time. So do I think education is good? Absolutely. I think it's one of the greatest things that exists in our country. Uh, as far as culinary school, it's, you know, one could argue that if you have an in and you know somebody and they're willing to take you under the wing the way the Knowles bro- Knoll brothers took me under the wing and teach you and show you. And then, you know, a lot of what I tell a lot of new hires for any of the restaurants, whether it was when I was at Del Posto, hiring line cooks or sous chefs or now at, at Pig Beach or Pig Bleaker, one of the main things I look for in any sort of person applying is just do they have a good attitude? Are they excited about what they want to do every single day? And, you know, outside of that, like I can more or less teach people the rest. But I want I would prefer sometimes just to have a clean slate of somebody that's super excited and super eager that just wants to learn and see and do and, uh, you know, go from there. I mean, one of the greatest examples of this is my chef, uh, Stephen Fugate, who uh, opened up Pig Beach and Pig Bleaker with me. He came in to Del Posto because he knew a friend that got him a stage. And he came in, his previous experience, he had no culinary training at all, but his previous experience was the Outback. And he worked at Outback Steakhouse for like three or four years. And kid knew how to grill a steak, so we like immediately put him on the roast station. We're like, all right, you know how to grill a steak, here you go, cook lamb chops and steaks all night long. Um, but what he lacked in sort of formal training, he made up for it like tenfold with just his sort of personality and his, his attitude and his eagerness to like want to learn more and want to stay late and want to see everything and do everything. So, so that you, goes a long, long way in this industry. So you heard it here first. If you work your ass off and you worked at Outback Steakhouse, you can end up working at a four-star New York Times you restaurant can. You if can. you just put in the effort and really That's just right. show up every day. That's right. Uh, let's talk about Boston a little bit. Before we go to the break uh, – can you talk a little briefly, if you can just sum up kind of what happened in Boston when you got out of culinary school? Uh, it was still on the come up a little bit, Boston yep. was, when you were there. It's yep. now sort of solidifying itself as a, as a culinary powerhouse. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say that that happened more than, honestly, five or seven, ten years ago, right? Yeah. So um, when you were there, what was it like? Where were you working? And what did you kind of glean from that experience? All right. So the quick, quick version. <laughs> I graduated uh, culinary school um, in 2004. So part of the CIA requires you to, to do what they call an externship program. So I did mine in Boston at a restaurant called Pagal that was in the theater district for Chef Mark Orfali. Now, I was recommended to go to that restaurant because Jason Knoll had worked with him when he did his stage at Olive's restaurant with Todd English. So at the time, Marco Folly was a sous chef for Todd English at Olive's. And at that time, like Barbara Lynch was a sous chef and, and you know, Tony Susi was there. So a lot of these big name juggernaut Boston chefs were working in that one kitchen under Todd and it was sort of like that heyday of, of really incredible people. So I did my internship, uh, graduated culinary school, and then Chef Rafali called me back. He's like, what are you doing? We'd love to have you come back to Boston. 
And, you know, my internship was really hard. It was, you know, six days a week, like 15 hours a day. I, my second day on the job, the kid that was working Garmage no called, no showed. So he put me on the on the station and said, all right, let's lucky, see what you got. You. Yeah, lucky me. Let's see what you got. And, you know, I survived. And he's like, all right, well, the station's yours now. I, you know, I can fill that slot with a very, very inexpensive uh, intern and I don't have to hire somebody. So like winner, winner, chicken dinner, let's go. The really cool thing about my experience and internship at Pagal was Jamie Bissonette was my sous chef there at the time. Jamie Bissonette is now like super chef, celebrity star, chef owner of Toro oh, wow. and uh, um, uh, Little Donkey and a couple other restaurants with Ken Oranger and also like an amazing human being of a guy. I love him. He's just he's just the best. And he took me under my, his wing when I was at Pagal and showed me tons and tons of stuff. Um, so anyways, I came back after graduating culinary school, valedictorian of my class, if you will, and a uh, little side note in there, it's funny, um, and uh, went back to work at Pagal, and then kind of like, I don't know, six months into being back at Pagal, I was like, you know, I, I now remember why this was like so hard, and I just, I didn't want to do it anymore. So I, Jamie Bissonette left Pagal, and he was opening up a restaurant called Eastern Standard, this gigantic restaurant near Fenway. And wanted me to come and work with him there as one of his sous chefs. So I, you know, being the open book that I am, being very upfront and honest, I went right back to Chef Rafali and said, hey, this is what the opportunity is that's happening. You know, it seems like really too good to, to turn down, but I always want to be upfront with you and let you know what's happening. And he said, Matt, you've always said that you wanted to go to Italy. You've always said you wanted to go and work in New York. He's like, what if I told you I can make both of those things happen? And I was like, whoa, all right, I'm listening. So Mark Rafali set me up with a stage to work with Mark Ladner at Lupa and Oto for about two weeks down in New York City, and I was able to stay on a friend's couch for those two weeks I was down there, which was great. And then they sent me to Italy, where I lived and worked for about three months with uh, two different families. I basically lived above the restaurant with the Nona of one restaurant called uh, Irriki that was in Cercina, just outside of Tuscany, and another restaurant called Il Rosalino that was in Pienza for this amazing uh, uh couple that ran the restaurant two husband and wife couple there was literally 12 seats in the restaurant and in italy when you dine out the seats yours for the entire night so like they don't turn tables like we do here in in the rest of the the country um so i had that incredible opportunity and then i came back and we opened up mark arfali's italian american uh like roman influenced trattoria called marco after his name and i was the opening chef de cuisine of that restaurant at 24 which was terrifying but we did great. We got an incredible review from the Boston Herald, I think, is the one that does the restaurant reviews, or the Globe. I forget which one. And tons of great accolades. I was nominated as like a you know new rising star chef through Star Chefs, um, and had a bunch of other great things that I've you know forgotten about because I'm old now, I guess. But uh, that was what sort of catapulted me to um, just really continue to pursue my Italian pedigree and heritage. So I worked at Marco for four years until I kind of got to a point where I felt like I outgrew Boston a little bit and I wanted to immerse myself in deeper waters. And Mark Ladner would come back and forth to Boston from time to time because him and Mark Rafali were actually really good friends. They went to high school together and culinary school together. So um, I called up Ladner. He said, Maddie, come on down. We'd love to have you. And I was really excited because I want to go and work at Lupa because I was never into like really super fine dining, really fancy food. But Ladner said, you know, I'm not at Loop anymore. We just opened up this brand new restaurant called Del Posto. I would really love for you to come and work with me there. Um, if you want to work at Loop, we can totally make that happen, but I'd rather you be at Del Posto. 
So we're going to take a quick break. All and right. then we come back, we're going to talk Del Posto. Del Posto years. Let's do it. Stick with us here on the line with Chef Matt Abdu. We'll be right back after the break. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. Welcome back to The Line. My guest today is Chef Matt Abdu. He is taking us through his whirlwind life Ooh, and tour of right. uh, upstate New York, CIA, Boston, Italy. He's going all over the place, but now we're actually coming back in the second half of the show to New York. Right before the break, you dropped in Mark Ladner's name, who I was excited that you brought up because uh, he's sort of known as like the pasta king, right? Indeed. So uh, for those that have never had the pleasure of going to Del Posto, it is a uh, pretty gigantic, extremely upscale, sort of old school, uh, classic uh, New York restaurant, multiple levels, tasting menu. Mm -hmm. So you end up there with Mark Ladner. You're yep. what, 26, 27, 27 years old? I was you're, 27 cool. when so I got to Del Posto. You're at kind oh, of the... You're kind of like at the the high-end Mecca. You're yes. in New York at uh, at yep. what becomes a four-star restaurant. What yeah, is that? that bananas. What is that experience like in that kitchen with that amount of pressure, even with all the work you've done up until then? How yeah. are you feeling at that point? I mean, things are totally different. When you're when you're in your 20s and you're young and you're hungry and you're like, I don't care, and you're single, you don't have a family, a girlfriend, kids or anything, you literally have zero responsibilities and you can channel every single ounce of your focus and your effort and your time and your talents into this one thing. Um, it really opens up a lot of doors and that's pretty much exactly what I did. I mean, I, I left Boston um, just, you know, I... I my girlfriend at the time and I split up after being together for like four years and you know, you're, you're depressed about that, but yet you're super excited for this new opportunity that's happening in New York. And I, you know, it was just, it was full speed ahead when we got down there. So I left Boston being the chef de cuisine of a, of a really great restaurant, um, making a decent salary for what I, for what I made for, you know, back then, which still was very barely enough to make rent <laughs> in the life of a chef. But, uh, I left there to come to Del Posto 
spoke with Mark Ladner. He said, you know, everybody we go through goes through like a three month sort of training phase. So for those three months, we we can only pay you nine dollars an hour. And I was like, ugh, that's rough. You know, my rent is like I'm sh- I'm splitting a three bedroom, a two bedroom converted to a three bedroom, and my rent, my share of the rent was like eighteen hundred dollars. I was like, oh, I don't okay, Brutal, yeah. all right, we're gonna, we're gonna figure out a way to make this happen. Um, so I got to work a lot of extra overtime for banquets. Thank God they had that. That's the only way I was able to make ends meet. But uh, I worked, uh, started off on Garmage, um, with the intention of being promoted to a sous chef. So, you know, I worked Garmage at that station back when we had what was called the Enoteca. It was sort of like a smaller restaurant with inside of Del Posto that was a lower price point that was a separated area in the dining room. They stopped doing that, but it was a different menu. So you had the Enoteca menu and then the main dining menu. So Garmage was picking up both Enoteca menu stuff and main dining room menu stuff. So it got a little chaotic. There was typically uh, three people that worked that station, one person that expedited and plated and made sure everything was good, and then two other little worker bees that kind of put together the rest of the plate. So, you know, I just got my butt kicked, and I worked Garmage for a lot of younger kids that were younger than me but have been at the restaurant for, you know, six months or a year or whatever. And, um, you know, I started showing my aptitude and my abilities and was quickly promoted to being a junior sous chef at the end of the month versus having to wait for the three month period. And then after a year, I was promoted to a senior sous chef. And then after two years, three years, I was promoted to executive sous chef. And the funny thing was, is that I never wanted to stay. I always said that, you know, I want to be in New York for two, three years at the most. I just want to get whatever culinary talent and training I can get out of it. Because being from a small town in upstate New York, I was never thought that being in a big city of Manhattan or New York City would be for me. Um, but every time that I was thinking about leaving, I kept getting promoted until finally I got promoted to be the chef de cuisine of the restaurant in 2012, 2012, I was promoted to chef de cuisine and I held that title until I left in 2016 and had an incredible journey and opportunity to work with, you know, side by side with Mark Ladner, who's like a big brother mentor to me, one of the greatest guys on the planet. If you guys don't know or didn't have a chance to eat at Del Posto when he was there, go to Pasta Flyer because the, the pastas he's making there in a fast casual concept are just as good as all the incredible pastas he made at Del Posto. And they're like 6 to $8 a bowl or something ridiculously cheap. So go yeah, and check him out. Very cool what he's doing. And actually, it's cool that both of you have actually – you both have moved away from the fine dining world, yeah. which we'll talk about in a second. Yeah. Um, but so, uh, you know, you gain all this intense experience in the kitchen, but also there's a wonderful uh, sort of financial aspect which you benefit from, which is that you connect with uh, Rob, who is yeah. a Del Posto investor. So you actually were able to uh, get interested in barbecue and then transition that into a business because of a yep. mutual love and respect yeah. for barbecue that you had with with a Del Posto investor. Yep. So often on the show, I ask like, "Well, where'd you get the money from to open up your project?" But you were actually like, uh, you were recipe testing, uh, pop up uh, contesting with yes. uh, with Rob. So yep. you met Rob, and then what happened? Well, you know what's really so. All of this, this story is just kind of crazy how it how it kind of goes off. So at our times at Del Posto, Mark Ladner and I were enthralled with the region of Abruzzo in Italy and they and the culture of the Spiadinis that they do out there. So the reason the, the reason I met Rob Shogger was because Mark and I took a trip to Austin, Texas to go and see how American barbecue could potentially correlate with the region of Abruzzo Italian barbecue. 
and just to see if we could draw any sort of inspiration from it. So we went to Austin. Uh, Rob Schauger joined us on the trip. Jeff Porter, who's the wine director of like B&B hospitality for like the entire East Coast. He's like a super, super sommelier man and incredible human being. We love JPO. Uh, we went to Austin, Texas. We ate at Franklin's. We went to Louis Mueller's. We went to Black's. We went to uh, City Market. I mean, we went to all the big name places in Austin and literally had the meat sweats. It was like insane what we did. <clears throat> but Rob and I bonded pretty quickly on the first night over our mutual love for food and beverages. And uh, it was funny at the end of the night after going to like five or six barbecue joints and completely overdoing it, everybody else wanted to go out and get like tacos and tequila. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm staying home. And Rob's like, I can't breathe. I'm not leaving either. So I hung out with Rob and Rob is notoriously a, a white wine drinker. And uh, he kept like offering me drink some white wine with him and hang out and the funny thing was that being like stuffed to the gills and sweating meat we were watching the hunger games it was really kind of strange but we bonded on that trip and then when he left he said you know anytime you want i barbecue all the time on the weekends come and hang out in my home in sag harbor we'll do up the barbecue we'll like just have some fun love to have you out to my home and i was like okay that's cool i've never been to the hamptons before this is like swanky and fun let's do this right so like the following week, he sent a car to pick up me, Mark Ladner, and uh, Mark Ladner's girlfriend, Nastasia, and we went out to his home in Sag Harbor, and he had this Tucker, uh, you know, drum style uh, smoker, and we cooked like 12 racks of ribs and two pork shoulders and a bunch of sausages, and I was like, this is so cool, this is awesome, and uh, we ended up, he's like, anytime you want, come on out, so we ended up becoming buddies, and he would invite me out there, and I'd take the train out. Or the jitney out, and we'd barbecue over the weekend. And again, I'm single at the time; I don't have any commitments, so I'm working at Del Posto. And my weekends, I'm going and hanging out with uh, Rob at his house. And we started getting really good at it to the point where he started entering us into local barbecue competitions in Long Island and Staten Island, and we started winning those. And then he's like, "All right, well, I'm going to get us into Memphis in May. Let's see what we can do there." So that's I, the, that's the big show. It's one of the it's one of the big ones. So like yeah. of all the biggest barbecue competitions in our country, there's the Royal, the Jack, and Memphis in May. So those three are like the top three, and uh, I think they call the Memphis in May the World Series of Barbecue is what they nickname it. But you know you have all the biggest and the best barbecue guys in the country competing there. So my first year down there, we won second place in whole hog and first place in poultry. Um, and like everyone's heads were exploding. We're like, what just happened? The people down there, the, the Southerners and the Midwesterners were like, who are these New Yorkers up on stage? What is Salty Rinse Barbecue? You don't even have a restaurant at that no. point, right? Well, I'm, I'm still working at Del Posto. Right, but you, you don't have a barbecue no, restaurant. No, I certainly don't have a barbecue You're restaurant. You're like a Salty, team of mercenaries yes. or something like that. Salty Rinse Barbecue. Salty Rinse is the name of Rob's wine that he has made for him. So like he's like, oh, Salty Rinse Barbecue. And, you know, sure, like, why not? Why not? Exactly, right? So... We, they're like, who are these guys? So anyways, we took that victory. We, I mean, second place in the whole hog for us was a huge victory. We took that victory to launch Pig Beach as a pop-up in Gowanus. And at the time, when we, were, when we took over the space, it was partnered with another company called Swan Dive. So Swan Dive controlled all the booze. Pig Beach only did the food. Now, anybody that owns a restaurant knows that in order for a restaurant to succeed financially, you need to have a beverage program. So it was truly just a pop-up just for us to get to see if we could produce barbecue on a consistent level. Mm-hmm. Um, we hired in a couple of guys to run it. Again, I'm still full-time at Del Posto, so I can't even really be at the pop-up all that much. I come after work and I come on my weekends. Um, but we certainly had some struggles doing it, you know, working outside in the rain and the cold. And we had literally a tent and a mobile rig smoker. It was kind of bananas. But, you know, after the by the end of the summer, we finally kind of got our stuff together and started doing and producing pretty consistently good barbecue. And our landlords asked us if we wanted to take over the entirety of the space. And we we're like, well, here's our opportunity. 
But the funny part was is when Rob took me to the abandoned lot that is now Pig Beach, it was kind of scary. It's Gowanus. I don't know what Gowanus is. I'm living in Hell's Kitchen at the time. I like never come to Brooklyn. It's like it might as well be a different country out here. Yeah, it was like a total gravel parking lot oh, type it was of terrifying. Vibe, right? Yeah, completely. A gravel parking lot, cars on cinder blocks. Yeah. Uh, you know, rolled up barbed wire. I mean, it was kind of a lot like what Roberta's backyard was prior to them expanding and taking it over. It was very, very similar, which yeah. is really kind of cool. But Rob had the vision as well as the rest of the team of what we could do and how we could bring, you know, that fun concept to the area. And in the last three and a half years, we've really evolved that space to be now a paved backyard lot, which was once a seasonal restaurant operation is now a full year round uh, business. We built out 10,000 square feet of additional indoor space uh, last fall which has been really successful and really great. So now we're indoor, outdoor, 23,000 square feet in total barbecue beer garden operation. It's pretty epic. And you've got picnic tables. You've got cornhole. Yep. There's a whole, like you said, inside space, which is obviously very nice on either super hot days or when it's maybe raining. Um, but in its first kind of incarnation as a pop-up, when you're still at Del Posto, are you thinking to yourself – wow, this this is really going to end up being a thing? Or were you thinking, I don't know, where was your thought process so, at? Did you think that, that Pig Beach was the next stage in your career? Or did you think that that was a fun side project and no, you were going to stay question. fine dining? No, that's a great question. I knew that fine dining for me had an expiration date. Like I, Even in my time, Ladner and I would kid about how we would want to do these new projects that definitely weren't fine dining. I mean, fine dining takes its toll on you as a cook. I mean, you have to have a very specific mindset to have that be the continuing rest of your career and culture because it's very stressful. It's a very pressure cooker environment to make sure that, you know, within cooking, you have a window of acceptability. When you're working at a restaurant like Del Posto, that window of acceptability is very, very small, um, meaning that the precision has to be almost perfect on every single plate. And to have that stress level of like perfection every single time is very daunting and very stressful. But, you know, I, I kind of got to the point in my career. So I'm, I'm, 10 years into Del Posto, I'm now, you know, 35 years old, 36 years old, and I'm thinking to myself, I want to be a partner. I don't want to continue to be an employee. So kind of what what really was the uh, extension for me to pursue Pig Beach full-time and leave Del Posto was, A, I kind of got to my ceiling there. I knew I wasn't going any higher. And uh, But an incredible journey of having amazing opportunities, working side-by-side side with Mark Ladner and Mario Batali and getting to like meet my you know idols and mentors and just having an incredible experience. Um, I got to a point where I sat down with Mario and said, Chef, look, I, you know, I really am at a point now where I want to be a partner in my next project. And uh, he you know, more or less said that that opportunity wasn't available to be a partner. That's just not what they do. And I said, well, I totally understand. No hard feelings, but I think it's time for me to pursue something new. And, you know, Rob was really pressuring and pushing me to, to pursue this Pig Beach concept. So that's kind of what the catalyst was for me to leave Del Posto and pursue Pig Beach full time. So at this point now, today, there's uh, Pig Beach in Gowanus. There's also a Pig Bleaker in the city. Yep. For those that aren't that are listening that aren't super familiar with the geography, those are not that close together. Uh, you've got restaurants, and they aren't just like a hop and a skip, walk across the street to check on each other. Uh, one's absolutely gigantic. The other yep. one's also pretty big. Barbecue is very difficult right you're you're cooking over wood uh it's long cook periods how do you manage both restaurants how do you uh maintain the quality and the precision precision that you uh know you can since you have this long Mm. cooking pedigree when you got 
two restaurants that are far apart and doing a very old school complex cooking yeah. process? Uh, another great question. So the the only thing I can really say is that we've been really blessed with being able to hire amazing talent to help us grow the company. Um, you know, uh, not to get on too much of a sad note, but my wife's twin brother, Jeff Michener, uh, was the executive sous chef at Cereal Restaurant, and he left Cereal to come and open up Pig Beach with us when it was the pop-up. Jeff ran it when it was the pop-up. And then uh, he uh, went to work at Schiller's Liquor Bar when Pig Beach closed down for the season and then came back to reopen up Pig Beach. And uh, Jeff did an amazing job to help the restaurant grow to where it's become today. And it was really his baby, you know, and my, you know, just sort of oversight and help and like bringing him up to speed on certain things and showing him all the stuff that I had learned working with Rob. Um, but sadly, Jeff passed away suddenly in May. Uh, he had a, you know, I don't know, a stroke or aneurysm or something had happened to him. So that was a huge blow to us. I mean, my life and world was completely turned upside down by that. And, um, you know, being so intertwined within my my wife's twin brother, my very dear friend, my executive chef at and partner at Pig Beach, uh, was now gone, and it was very challenging for me to figure out how to pick up those pieces and be in both places at once, and it was very difficult. But I was able to you know lean on some other staff that I had, promote some other guys, and uh, sort of rally around because everybody loved Jeff and everybody didn't want what his legacy that he helped build there. Uh, to to fade away, so everyone really rallied behind that to really help. And uh, plus, too, we've had great guys and retention in the in the back of house at both restaurants. Where the great thing about barbecue is as challenging as it can be, because you're basically just trying to keep a consistent heat and a consistent fire, so that things don't die out or things don't spike. Um, but once you get guys trained up on it, and we have an incredible team of guys that have been trained really, really well and know exactly what to do, that if I come in there and I say I want a taste of everything, they cut it up, and nine times out of ten, everything is just lights out great. You know, every now and again, there'll be a little hiccup of, oh, uh, they, you know, didn't put enough smoke on this, or maybe they didn't season that enough, or maybe like the bark wasn't developed as good as it should be on the brisket. But for the most part, I mean, they, we have a great team that does a really, really great job. And, you know, I, I, one of the biggest things that I think is important for as a chef operator and, and a, a restaurateur is you have to create a culture and an environment for your employees that makes them want to be a part of your growth and make them want to be excited about what it is that you're doing so that they can feel that they have a career ahead of them to be something that's more than just a job. And I, it's always been very um, important to me to make people feel comfortable where they work and make them feel excited about what they're working, give them opportunities to play with different things and run specials. And when you give people that sort of freedom and opportunity uh, for advancement and creativity, it sort of creates an environment where people just really want to do a great job because then they feel really attached to the program, that it's theirs and they can own it. And that's been really helpful to be able to manage my ability to go back and forth between the restaurants to have it happen that way. You obviously just touched on an, an an incident with your family that could have become insurmountable that seems like more difficult than almost any issue that any restaurateur could ever face because it's multi-layered and multifaceted uh i'm curious be, besides that which obviously majorly impacted your life as a restaurant owner just the day-to-day in new york what scares you and concerns you the most about being a restaurant owner? Um, maybe besides, you know, a, a staffing yeah. major issue or, you know, something in your life, like what, as a, as a business owner, what um, really maybe keeps you up at night? 
<laughs> you know, it's funny. We we joke about it, and you know, it's, and there's certain days we'll just say, "Why would anybody ever want to own a restaurant?" Because it's probably one of the most insane and grueling and crazy things that has so many different moving pieces that most people that dine out regularly that, that don't work in the restaurant industry have no idea about between health department inspections, keeping things clean, having the staff be on time, having the staff show up, having the staff show up sober, um, you know, having enough business to pay the bills, to pay the rent, to pay the payroll, the overheads, the electric bill. I mean, there's so many expenses and it's in an industry that is so overly critiqued. Like there's very few industries out there where if you go, people have an open platform to express their frustrations and their happiness. But most of the time, the only things that get posted are the unhappy thoughts that you hear. And that in itself can be a very uh, depressing and frustrating and difficult thing to deal with as a restaurant owner because we get into this as chefs. I got into this for chefs. You know, if, if people have been listening since the beginning of this program, food for me was always about love and about being able to make people happy and bring people together. So when people dine at any of my restaurants, the one thing I want to do is embrace them with the warm hug of what food was for me when I was a kid, when my mother and my grandmothers would be cooking for me. All we want to do is make you happy. So it's important that if you're unhappy or we haven't met your expectations or something isn't right, please let us know then and there so we can have the opportunity to fix it and correct it and make you happy because I promise you that's all we're trying to do is to create an experience um, that makes you happy and leaves you wanting to come back again and again. Um, so when you don't do that and we don't have an opportunity to fix it and we don't know and then the things go up into the ether and then it's like, oh my God, what happened? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Um, so obviously if you don't have guests coming to your restaurant, you don't have an influx of money to pay your staff and pay your bills and pay your employees and everything else that goes with it. So I think one of the biggest things that keeps you up as a restaurateur and owner at the end of the night is, you know, how can I continuously stay relevant? How can I continuously stay in the public's eye of being a really awesome, fun place that people want to eat at? Because the second you become complacent and the second you like sit on your laurels and think you're good and you've made it is the second that somebody else is going to come up and do it better than you. And then you could fall to the wayside and then you start seeing your sales drop and then things just kind of start, you know, wind, uh, just going away. And it's, it can be a very scary thing. So you always have to be on your toes. You always have to be pushing. You always have to be trying to st stay relevant, do new things, do new dishes, new items, new events, do this promotion, do that promotion. And just really always push and work as hard as you can to like make sure that you're you're not falling to the wayside. It used to be just you had to cook good food and hopefully people came, but now it's really oh, it's so much it's more a, than it's that. It's a data now. business, yeah. right? You have yep. to know. You have to be on Instagram. You have to be on Facebook. You have, you have to, to know the numbers. Know, yep. You can't just show up and and put out plates and say, "Oh, we did 100 covers tonight. That must have been good." Like you have to really dr drill down well, yeah, into it's the like, data. Oh, 100 covers. That must have been good. But wait, our check average is only it dropped. Like it, our check average should be 50 dollars a person, and it's only 30 dollars a person. Why is that? Well, the majority of people now are. Or ordering the hamburger because you've gotten so much press and praise on your hamburger within Burger Bash and everything else and Eater and, and Thrillist and Gotham Burger Social Club. Everyone's coming for your burger, but your burger is one of the lowest checkpoint check price averages on the you menu. You need them to order those ribs and those well, briskets. Yeah, and, I mean, well, that's yeah. a crazy thing. It's like you would never think that praise and good publicity would be something that could be detrimental to a restaurant. Totally. But like if you have dishes on the menu that you're hoping people eat more of and they're ordering the lower price point menu item because that's what's gotten all the recognition, it can, it's, it's just a, it's a whirlwind, man. The uh, sort of the name of the the the, the business that that everyone's kind of moving towards now is I have a concept. It has the ability to be replicated, expanded. Yep. Uh, 
it's not really the Nana 20 seat, 13 seat restaurant anymore. Yeah. It's now, um, hey, good concept. I really liked your meal. How many can you open and how quickly can you open them? Yeah. That, that being said, Pig Beach, Pig Bleaker, do you think either of them have the ability to be replicable? And do you have interest in doing so outside of the New York area? Oh, yeah. I love that question. Um, Pig Bleaker is not really so much as replicable as Pig Beach model is. Pig Bleaker is still a very you know, chef-driven, sit-down restaurant. There's a menu, there's service, there's a wine list, there's cocktails, there's the whole gambit of things that go along with it. And it really needs the direct attention of myself or, you know, somebody that I could hire to be like the chef de cuisine or the executive chef of the restaurant to really run it. But the reality is, is that restaurants like Pig Bleaker and many small restaurants in the city, you know, they struggle to break even every week and every month because it's, you know, with what rents are in the city, it's outrageous. And what labor is in the city is outrageous and it's very difficult. So Pig Bleaker replicable, is it? Sure, but probably we wouldn't do it only because from a financial point of view, it wouldn't really make sense. Pig Beach, however, there's a lot of things in the works right now of getting to expand that brand. I mean, it's it's fun. It's kitschy. It's cute. It's clever. The food's incredible. We have it locked into a point now where we, we can really replica, replicate it on mass scale as well. And uh, there's also op- talks and abilities of either expanding the Pig Beach brand itself or doing spinoffs of it, of like Pig Beach Piglets that could be a potential fast casual concept of like get your Pig Beach burger and your ribs and your pulled pork sandwich or your brisket sandwich kind of thing as well. So that's certainly a more replicable model that we're, we're actively pursuing. I'm going to get you out of here on this last question. You, over the course of your career, You've had the ability to work with a lot of incredible chefs, Mark mm-hmm. Ladner, Jamie Bissonnette, the brothers at Cafe Canole, lots and lots of people um, inspired you. You said you lean on a lot of them for mentorship. Now you're at the top of the food pyramid and young cooks are coming to you and they're asking I'm you flattered by that. for Thank your, you. your advice. Uh, what do you say to a young cook who's having a bad day and going down in flames Um, and also what do you say to someone who says, I want to open up my own spot one day? Mm -hmm. Are those different sentiments that you're giving them? Like, what do you say to inspire someone, um, now that you've, uh, been able to open your own places and people are looking to you and saying, Oh, I kind of want to do what Matt's doing. Yeah. Well, I I wish this radio show was an extra hour long because we can continue to talk about this stuff uh, at length, but I, when I was on the line at Del Posto and I was getting beat up and I was having a hard night and regardless of how good I thought I was, you know, there are nights where things are going to go wrong and people are going to send food back. And the thing I would say to myself over and over is that this will pass. This will pass. And you have to have a short-term memory. Like in the restaurant biz, you can have a great night and be like super stoked about it. But like the next night you can go down in a pile of flames. Um, you just have to be like every day is a clean slate. Every day is new. Come to work with a great attitude Learn from your mistakes, which is the biggest thing. That's what I would tell cooks is that learn from your mistakes. Tomorrow's a new day. You have a complete opportunity to show what you're capable of doing, um, but you have to come back to work with a positive attitude every single day with a clean slate, ready to rock. That would be my biggest advice that I would give to anybody that's having a hard or stressful day in, in, the, in the restaurant biz. Um, as far as opening up your own place, my advice to anybody that talks to me about this is, do you love what you do? And if the answer is yes, Do you want people to have an opportunity to have what you have every single day? 
And they say yes. And I said, all right. So then the next step is you have to start thinking like a business plan and a business model. You have to get numbers together. And do you know like what you're anticipating, how many seats, what your check average is and all this stuff. And when they say, oh my God, I've never thought about that stuff. And I said, well, why don't we get a coffee? I can run you through how these things sort of work because you just can't say, oh, I love food, I love cooking, poof, I'm gonna open up a restaurant. There is so much stuff that goes into it before you can even begin to like express what you wanna do to potential investors to like get you the money to do what you want to do. I mean, I lucked out. I had my buddy and, and dear friend, Rob Schauger, who who had access to being able to raise money for us to open up these restaurants. But most people don't. Most people have the ability to be an incredible cook, but just not the means of getting the the financing together to actually open up their dream place. And it and it's a lot of work and takes a lot of time and a lot of knowledge that, you know, you have to really, really well research before you you go forth and try to do it. Matt, let everybody who's listening know where they can find both of your spots. Please. Uh, Pig Beach Barbecue is on 480 Union Street in Gowanus between Bond Street and what we like to call the Brooklyn Riviera of the Gowanus Canal. It doesn't smell anymore. It's wonderful. And even if it did, the beautiful aroma of our barbecue masks at all anyway. So come see us over there in Brooklyn. And we have Pig Bleaker that's located on 155 Bleaker Street, the corner of Bleaker and Thompson, where you can come and get delicious sit-down American. American comfort food with great grilled items and burgers, ribs, brisket. Oh my, come and see us. And we're also doing an incredible Halloween party at Pig Beach for both children and adults and incredible catering for the holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Get your whole turkeys, your your green bean casserole, mashed potatoes, pre-order it starting November 1st at both Pig Bleaker and Pig Beach. We'd love to see you. Matt, thanks so much for being here and sharing your story with everyone listening and with the line. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Everybody tune in every Tuesday at 11 a.m. And a quick shout out to next week's episode. I've got Brandon Hoy from Roberta's coming in to talk about the whole chaotic madness of uh, the place uh, that we're sitting right now where we record our show. So join us next week and every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for more episodes of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.